You are listening to the American Truth Project Podcast. Hi, it's great to be with you guys. Um, I was asking permission um, from your boss as to how long I should go. Uh, I brought enough for a long talk. And there's, there's so much that's important. Um, I think it's serious enough to spend my time putting it together. And if you can stay awake, I'll go through it with you. It's a very, very, very big news day. I'm not going to talk about Turkey simply because we don't know too much about it other than I'm absolutely positive it's terrorism and ISIS is already starting to claim credit according to what I'm hearing on the way over. So let me tell you what I will talk about that will be more germane on a, on a political basis. Uh, I'm going to cover the following topics. First we're going to talk about Trump and why I think he won the Republican nomination. Two, we're going to talk about what Trump needs to change if he wants to be President of the United States, and I think it's a number of things. Uh, three, we're going to talk about Brexit and why that is so important to us as Americans and why I think it relates to Trump very strongly. Number four, I'm going to talk to you about Orlando. I'm going to tell you things about that shooting you have not heard and you're going to be angry about because you need to know this stuff. Number five, I'm going to talk about Hillary's email. She was all over the news this week about it, and there's some news that happened yesterday that is not in the press yet, and you need to know. Uh, last, uh, on a major issue, I'm going to talk about the Iran nuclear deal and what Obama and Kerry did this week, which, as far as I can tell, is not in the mainstream press. And then I'll tell you a little bit about the American Truth Project. My associate, Sutton, has some sign-up sheets, so that will put you on our mailing list. So you'll see the shows I do. I do one to two national television shows a week. Uh, and I publish and I do these speeches. So there's a lot to see if you want to see it. So you don't have to drive around. You can just sit on your computer and go crazy. Okay, so let's start out with Donald Trump. How did a guy that had never been elected to anything become the GOP nominee? In short, he did it by breaking every single rule in the history of politics. Let's talk about it. Number one, he spent virtually no money. In comparison to the other candidates, there's never been anybody that's pulled off what Donald Trump pulled off. Notwithstanding the fact that he's worth billions, he didn't spend very much to do it. And when you compare the people that he beat, listen to these numbers. Marco Rubio spent $111 million and lost. Cruz spent $112 million. Jeb Bush spent $59 million and was out almost as soon as it started. By the way, this doesn't count the PAC money. This is their campaign. The PACs report separately. Almost everything that Trump spent was spent on travel and support for the people around him. He did it with the smallest staff in American national presidential history. That's unbelievable. Number two, this is really wild. Do you know that Donald Trump has never done any polling? Let me tell you why that's important. Everybody who runs on a national stage does polling. Obama took it to a PhD level. They polled every single issue before he opened his mouth on any single issue. So he reacted to what the people were looking to hear, especially on buzzwords. 
There's a certain way you say something, and if you say it that way, people will flock to it. Even if they don't understand the issue, they will resonate to how they're talked to about stuff. It's why you buy Coke instead of Pepsi, or McDonald's instead of Burger King. There are buzzwords that you will react to, and people spend hundreds of millions of dollars to figure out what they were. You know who Trump's pollster was? Anybody? Him. Him. He says, I feel it in my gut. And he has that talent to know what people react to. Number three. This astounds me. He was almost 100% off the cuff. Literally, a press conference every day. You know, Donald Trump did more press conferences last week than Hillary Clinton has done in her political career. Why? It's scary to face the press because you don't know what's coming. And he's got this ability to be able to do it with comfort. However, along with that comes the most bizarre statements you've ever heard. Right? He opens his mouth and out comes stuff. But more often than not, it's what you're thinking, not what you'd say in public, but there's a great amount of resonance where people go, God, I can't believe he said that. You know, I wish I had the balls to say that. That's the way he is, and he knows what that is, right? Remember in Chicago when he said, I'd like to punch that guy in the face, and the press jumped down his throat? By the way, half the people in that arena were thinking the exact same thing. Those were paid thugs that were there under employment contracts with MoveOn.org, and Trump said what half the people in the audience were thinking, right? So. He didn't use teleprompters, if you remember, until very, very recently. His first foreign policy speech uh, was in front of the APAC meeting. He read it off the teleprompter, got fantastic reviews. His second one was his American um, press conference on foreign policy, which a friend of mine wrote half of it. And that was the big change to being more presidential. Um, in terms of his no filter, he said things which I still am sorry he did, especially during the debates like little Marco, remember that, talking about what he was talking about, if you remember. Um, he said things, he's used the F word, he's used the S word. It, it's unpresidential and a lot of people have a problem with it. Um, you know he's the only candidate in national po political history to reject all super PAC money? That's extraordinary, because that's, because of the Supreme Court decision, that's where all the money can come in, and it's unlimited. So when they limit what you can donate, it doesn't mean a thing, because super PACs can be sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars, and you know there's a quid pro quo if a super PAC comes to talk to you. Think about it. We're going to put $75 million into Trump for president. Here's what we want in exchange. We want a trade deal with... Bulgaria, and we wanted to say blah, blah, blah. What do you think? According to what I've heard inside the campaign and what Trump said publicly, he's turned down every single super PAC donation offer because every one of them came with an, with an ask. There's a quid pro quo, something for something, right? And he always said no. He's also been, this is his eighth thing he did, which he should never have done, but he did and worked. He's insulted almost every single group you can think of. <laughs> On live television, right? So remember, if you go back to the early debates when he was talking about uh, running against a certain ex 
president of Hewlett Packard and she, he said she was ugly and you wouldn't want her to be president. I mean, look at her. And, and he still won, right? You're not supposed to be able to talk like that. In the beginning, he was very thin on policy. He was all about talking points. But let me give you an example of what a genius he is. How many people know he wants to build a wall? <laughs> Who's going to pay for it? <laughs> Look, that's talking points over and over and over and over again till you get it. You all got it a while ago, but the point is you can't tell me three of Hillary Clinton's talking points. You can't. In fact, the guy that was the deepest on talking points, stop it, you're a scholar. The person that was the deepest on foreign policy and domestic policy in terms of every single policy on his website was Marco Rubio. Tell me what he said. You don't have it because it wasn't banged on your head in short sentences repeatedly every time you got in front of a crowd. So what he got made fun of was exactly his strong point. Talking points, short thoughts, over and over again, and all of you can say it. Isn't that interesting, right? So what happened? He gets to the end. He's acting completely non-presidential. Everyone says, when are you going to start acting like a president? And we're going to talk about that in a minute. And yet he beat 17 people with way more money, way more political experience, a lot savvier, with huge campaigns, and Trump did it with about three or four people. Here's a wild one for you to think about. And I think I'm right about this. He's the guy that won from the outside. People liked him because he was against the inside. He's not a beltway guy, you know, inside the beltway in D.C., right? Cruz said, I'm not a Beltway guy, which was a lie, because he was. Marco Rubio said he was an outsider, which was a lie, because he's a U.S. senator. And on and on and on. There was only one other person um, that really made it to the end, which was Ben Carson. And yet, Trump was the one that carried by being an outsider. You know who the other outsider is? Bernie Sanders. He's not a Democrat. He's running on the Democratic ticket because there isn't a socialist ticket, <laughs> right? He, he registers as an independent. He caucuses with the Democrats because they're the closest to socialist communists. Yes. But, but that's his philosophy. Here's some irony for you, and here's a theory I have, and I think I'm going to be borne out in the polls. There's a large segment of the population that's voting for Bernie for the same reason that they're voting for Trump. They're disenfranchised. They're pissed off at the government. They don't think their votes have ever counted. And they don't think whoever they vote for will matter unless Bernie gets in. Because Bernie hates everybody. And Trump comes from a position of, I'm not going to listen to Washington. I'm not going to listen to the insiders. I'm going to do what's right for you. So there's about 20 to 25%, supposedly, and there's polling on this, but it's in dispute, that about a quarter of the people that are Sanders supporters will not vote for Hillary because she's the consummate insider for 40 years. She's always been inside her whole life as an adult. So those people, the true Bernie Sanders people, if they're going to vote, could only vote for Donald Trump. 
It sounds weird, but it's quite possible. Hillary's got a real problem on her hands to go get those people to vote for her because everything she stands for is different than Bernie. And right now the fight is going on on how to build the platform. It's going so far to the left to keep the Bernie Sanders supporters under the tent. So by the time they get to Philadelphia, the Democratic Party may be like something you've never seen. It's going to be so far to the left, it's going to be so socialistic in its philosophy you may not recognize it. Let's see what happens. I'm hoping for the, for the Republicans that enough people cross over all the way over to the other side for Trump. Okay, so how does Trump get elected President of the United States? It's going to have to be a lot of changes in my opinion. Number one, he's got to stop the personal attacks. The statement he said about the judge here in San Diego was asinine. I'll tell you what he should have said. You can't call a guy born in Indiana a Mexican, because he's not. He's, he's a Hoosier, if you want to be accurate. He has Mexican ancestry. Everybody in this room has ancestry from somewhere, and we're not going to be insulted by it, and you can't insult a federal judge. Let me tell you how he could have beat that judge. He could have said, if you want to know, that judge made two key rulings in the class action against Trump University. He certified two class action law firms, both of whom are Democratic. They donate to Hillary Clinton's campaign and they're big supporters of MoveOn.org. And that's why the judge picked them, because he's a founding member of La Raza in San Diego, which is a socialist, Hispanic legal group. Now, if he said that, everything I just said is a fact, then people can go, yeah, now I see why he rules against Trump in the case. Draw your own conclusion. Don't say he's Mexican, because A, it's racist, and B, it's wrong. You see the difference? He was on the right track, he choked. And that's what I mean by take the personal stuff out of it and stick to the facts. The facts will win it for you, okay? Number two. He's got to act and speak as if he was president of the United States. What brung him to the dance is not going to get him to the final party. Why? Because he was fighting within the right wing of the conservative movement. Everybody in this room who votes will vote for Trump. He's not campaigning to you anymore. Everyone in the left wing of the Democratic Party will vote for Hillary Clinton if she's in prison. <laughs> Trust me on this. She will be elected from prison. Why? Because they're, they're dyed in the wool social democrats. They're progressives, and that's what they do. Donald Trump is not asking for their vote. He's going after the middle. The undecided vote, the decline to state, or the independents, like my wife, don't want to be party people. They want to decide by a candidate. That's the group that's going to decide the next president of the United States. To appeal to that group, sometimes they vote left, sometimes they vote right. That's the Reagan Democrats, right? You've got to sound like a president. You've got to look like a president. You've got to project presidential. And then, after that, you put in the policy. I heard three or four talk shows with pundits in the last month talk about the same thing. 
Most people vote for who they like. Then who they trust. And about fourth or fifth is policy. That's the truth. That's how you pick your friends. This is the same thing, just a bigger scale. So if you act like a president, look like Reagan, right? Don't look like Carter. You'll get the middle. That's what he's got to do, okay? I feel very strongly about it. He's got to stop saying stuff that's just stupid. You know, like, I like Putin, he respects me, I respect him. He's a fascist dictator of a police state who kills people who oppose him, and the ones he doesn't kill, he puts in prison. Don't align, your, align yourself with a thug of the largest police state in the world outside of China. It's not good policy. Right? That's not a presidential thing. You can't say things like, I'm going to bomb all the oil fields in Iraq and Syria, so we'll take away the money from ISIS. It'll also start World War III. However, you can strategically blow up stuff. That's a presidential statement. I'm going to carpet bomb the Middle East, which he did say, is not presidential. Okay? Next thing. This is how he wins. Concentrate on Hillary's weaknesses and hit people over the head talking point-wise, every speech. What are those things? Email. I'm going to tell you why she belongs in prison. I'm going to teach you the law in about 10 minutes. He's got to do it on talking points so that everybody gets it. Number two, Benghazi. 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 Gaudi's report came out today. There's all kinds of stuff in there. And you know what? Nobody is going to read the 800-page report in little tiny print. But they'll relate to talking points if they're banged over the head with it. Who made the decision not to send reinforcements? The State Department did. Who's in charge of the State Department? Hillary Clinton. Number three, Clinton Foundation. There are so many violations of law in regards to the foundation as to be unbelievable. There's so much policy that was being discussed inside the State Department at the same time money was flowing in to the Clinton Foundation on the same subject. Look up Monsanto. They gave tens of millions of dollars to the foundation at the same time the Secretary of State was making a speech on the promotion of world seed advancement. This is the program designed and run internationally by Monsanto. They're frankenseeds, right? She was pushing that program through the Department of State. So yeah, the Clinton Foundation does some good things, and they're crooks. They left the White House broke. They're worth $150 million while she was a U.S. Senator and then Secretary of State. Anybody mention that? Donald Trump should say it every single time and point to her when he does it. And oh boy, I think he's got it. Then he's got to talk about, I think, I think this is an issue. It hasn't happened big yet, but I hope it does. Hillary Clinton is an enabler of a serial abuser of women. Women that have been raped, women that have been sexually assaulted, women that have been coerced into behavior that they didn't like. And I'm not putting Bill on trial about this. He was already impeached for it, for one instance. But who went after every one of the women, slandered them in, 
in the public eye to the point where these women were humiliated and shut up. Look it up, it's Hillary Clinton. Women, women's groups should be incensed and fired up about it because she did that to her sisters and she deserves to be called on account because of it. Last thing, I think he's really got to talk about the economy. He's a job creator, an employer of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Do you know how many jobs Hillary Clinton has ever created? None. How many businesses she's ever run? None. People first care about their own survival. You care about how you're going to pay your bills, so does he, so does she. If he can show how he can create jobs, he's on the right track. That's how he wins. Let's see what happens. We'll see if I'm right. Okay? Let's talk about Brexit and why it's important. Everybody know what it means? Right? British exit from the EU. That's the conjunction they made. Okay? There was a shocking vote. The largest economy in history left the EU. The largest economy to leave. Right? This was supposed to be the permanent new world order in Europe. It took them 50 years to put this together. And finally, one country left. It was very, very close. Do you know who the leading campaigner for Britain to stay in the EU was? Besides Cameron, who quit because of it? Who said Obama? The President of the United States went to England and made speeches saying, if you vote to leave, you'll be punished on trade by the United States of America. Yeah, that was never publicized in the United States. Do you know what's the best thing that could have happened to the pro-leave people? Where the audacity of the American president to insert himself into internal British politics, people got really angry because they felt that was just like the EU, where Brussels was telling London what to do. Right? Brussels is where the EU is headquartered. Right. So Trump's over in Scotland saying, right on. Good job. You did what you should have done. You're declaring your independence. You're protecting your sovereignty, your jobs, your trade, and your borders. Right? I think it's going to have an effect on our campaign. We'll talk about it. First, a couple things to mention to you about what's going to happen. Actually, how they sold it. Okay? The big campaigns in Britain were about taking control of our country, taking control of our borders, deciding about our taxes. Sounds like Trump, doesn't it? Do you realize that every single poll this was supposed to lose? Every poll. It won because people were angry, and when they went in the voting booth, they did what they wanted to do. That's why polls are often wrong. Because people tell the pollster what they think the pollster wants to hear, or what won't embarrass them, um, because polls are always done verbally. I mean, there were crazy claims that if we leave the EU, uh, double-decker buses will be banned. Um, another campaign said fish and chips will be illegal. Um, <laughs> seriously, this was in the British press. Uh, <laughs> The, the subtext was that um, we don't want Brussels to run England and Great Britain anymore. So now what's going to happen? 
Britain used to feel that they were the emperors of the world. Now at least they're going to be the, ma the masters of their own destiny on their islands, which they haven't been for a long time. They feel like they've protected their national identity and their borders, right? Now they can decide how many immigrants, especially Islamic militants coming from the Middle East, come across their borders. Remember, the EU is about open borders. You don't need a passport. You can go from country to country to country to country to country. It's one big confederation. That was the intention of it. So they have a common currency, with the exception of the British, who wouldn't give up their pound. As a result of their vote, the pound has taken a pounding, has had their stock market. I don't think it's going to be long term. I think it's going to come back. So now that we're looking at the fact that they're not part of the continent anymore, which they always felt they never wanted to be, the people that won are ecstatic, and the EU wants to kick them out as soon as possible. It'll happen within the next couple of months. There's actually a um, campaign in Britain right now to undo the vote. Seriously, they, they had a million and a half signatures the first night um, to undo and, or redo the vote. It, it'll never happen. However, the concern is that Parliament can drag its feet uh, to adopt Rule 50, I think it's called, under the... Uh, uh, EU charter and there's no telling how long that's going to happen because this has never happened in history before. You're watching world history right now. So, you know, in my, in my opinion, um, I think it's going to spread. There's a movement in Scotland now to leave uh, Britain, uh, which the Scots have wanted to be independent for like a jillion years. Um, and there's movements now in several Scandinavian countries, Norway and Sweden, to leave the EU. So at the same time as Turkey is, is, is wanting to be a big part and those countries in the south of Europe, the north of Asia, want to come in, the countries on the north that are being destroyed by immigration want to leave. I didn't bring that speech tonight. I can talk to you ad nauseum about what's happened culturally and criminally to the Scandinavian countries by unrestricted Muslim immigration. It's startling. I'll give you one statistic. In Europe, the number one country for rape? Sweden. You've heard me say that before. Well, it's Sweden. It's Sweden by young Islamic men. It's a startling statistic, and they know they're out of control. The Home Secretary has said our financial and social system will collapse within the next couple of years unless there are radical changes. Yes, ma'am? No. No. By the way, the most restrictive gun laws uh, are in Paris. And that worked well, didn't it? You know, you know what they should have done, and, and I've seen this cartoon, they should have put up no guns here in their gun-free zone so then the terrorists, when they came in to shoot up Paris twice, would have put their guns away because gun laws work like that. It's a gun-free zone, exactly. All right, now, that brings me to our most recent shooting in Orlando. And I'm going to tell you stuff you don't know. Um, I'm not going to go through the details of the shooting because you've probably seen 300 hours on that. The guy that did the shooting is a guy named Omar Mateen, a registered Democrat. Um, 
<laughs> he had done reconnaissance on a number of sites, including Disney World, trying to find the maximum impact in a suicidal attack like that. Um, I think the reason why he picked the most crowded nightclub in Orlando, I think, this is my dime store psychology, is I think he was gay, and his father used to call him fag, and I think this was a way to redeem himself to his father, who is a radical Islamist, which I'm going to tell you about in a minute. Now here's something that's curious. He went shopping for bullets with his wife. He went shopping for bulletproof vests with his wife. In fact, they went into a gun store that was so freaked out when he and his wife asked for a thousand high caliber rounds and bulletproof vests that this gun owner, gun store owner did the right thing. You know who he called? The FBI. Called the FBI and said, there's a guy here planning something. He's got, he's got a legal permit. He's got a concealed carry permit. He's a federal gun protection employee, and I'm telling you, something's going down. And he was on the phone with his sales manager with the FBI. The FBI can't find the report. These guys will take lie detector tests, and they have the name of the person that they talked to. The FBI never followed up. On at least two occasions, Omar's co-workers called the FBI including his co-workers in the protection detail where he was working to say this guy is talking about jihad twice so the FBI came out picked the guy up and interrogated him and then sent him back and then later another group called the FBI and said this guy's gonna do something please come talk to him and again the FBI picked him up and sent him home so let me disprove something to you. The president said this was a lone wolf attack and it's very hard to stop these. Let me teach you why it isn't a lone wolf attack. Okay? Number one, Omar Mateen's father, his name is Sadiq Mateen of Port St. Lucie in Florida, had his own television show from between 2011 and 2015 on cable and broadcast worldwide for his campaign for the presidency of Afghanistan on the Taliban ticket. You think ISIS is bad? The Taliban has killed a lot more people when they were in power in Afghanistan. They are a vicious, ruthless group of murderers. This is the group that kills women for teaching. This is a group that kills every gay they can find. This is a group that, that is involved in the slave trade. His father ran for president a number of times on their ticket. He's raised money for the Taliban in South Florida. The father's main complaint about Afghanistan is the Durand Line, which was created by the British in 1893, that separates Afghanistan and Pakistan, was put in the wrong place, so Afghanistan should, should merge or expand the Pashtun tribal areas to be bigger Pakistan and that's his campaign slogan. He's known to the CIA, he's known to the FBI, he's on video claiming his or proclaiming his allegiance to the Taliban and thanking the United States for supporting Pakistan or sorry for um, supporting Pakistan in certain areas against Afghanistan. 
This is a quote from him on his video. Our brothers in Waziristan, our warrior brothers in the Taliban, and the national Afghan Taliban are rising up. Inshallah, God willing, the Duran line issue will be solved soon. Want to hear about the mother? <laughs> Ekbal Salman uses her Facebook page to promote Palestinian resistance fighters. She came to the United States in the 1980s. This is what she posted on Facebook. How many snipers from Palestine deserve a bow from our heads as we show our respect to them? She wrote in 2013 on Facebook. And a photo with that post praises a fighter who, quote, killed 11 Zionists in Israel, unquote. That's his mother. She posted recently her support, her support for Jamal al-Tawid, the Hamas official who, along with his wife and daughter, have been detained and jailed by Israeli authorities. And she proclaims her allegiance to Hamas, the group that is declared a terrorist organization all over the world. I hope that dismantles the lone wolf and the internet radical narrative. This is the way he was raised. The radicalization came from mom and dad. Oh, there's one more. His wife. She's missing. Well, no one knows where she is. She aided and embedded the, the attack. She went shopping for bullets. She went shopping for a bulletproof vest. She was on the reconnaissance detail. They have it on camera in a number of places. And a few days after the shooting, Attorney General Lynch asked, was asked, where is the wife? And she said, we have lost track of her at this time. <laughs> wow. It gets worse. Who knows what car is? Anybody? Care. You should care. Yeah, it's the Council on American-Islamic Relations. It's a, it's a front for a number of terrorist groups in the United States. They're apologists for every time a Muslim kills Americans. They are now legally representing everybody in the family and everyone at that mosque. Now this is the mosque in Fort Pierce, Florida that has such a radical imam, it produced the first American suicide bomber who blew himself up in Syria two years ago. The second mass murderer to come out of that mosque is this guy who killed 49 people, maybe more, in the nightclub in Orlando. You cannot talk to any member of that mosque without a care attorney present, including all interviews by the FBI, and the FBI is allowing that. So it's, it's really weird. Um, since the shooting, the Democrats, and that's what I asked about my question to you, did a sit-in on the House floor. The Republicans said, this discussion is about Islamic terrorism in the United States. And the Democrats said, no, it wouldn't have happened if there wasn't lax gun laws in Florida. And they sat on the floor in violation of congressional rules where they could have been, get this, arrested for it. And for some reason, not only they weren't, it was tolerated and televised on Periscope. Every minute of it. 
And those Democrats who did that refused to discuss the fact that it's yet another terroristic attack on the United States. Louis Gomer. <laughs> Let's talk about something new. I've got a theory. I'm writing an article about it. You all heard the term radical Islam? Yes. <laughs> I looked up what radical means. Webster says, very new and different from what is traditional or ordinary. So when people use the term radical Islam, they're confusing you. Someone who shoots non-believers, someone who kills apostates in the Muslim religion is not departing from, it is not doing something new, they are traditionalists. They are literalists. They're taking their holy book word for word. Okay? So, people who don't believe in mass killings, they're the radicals. They're the ones that want to stand up and say, you know what, there's parts of the Quran we shouldn't follow. You can't throw people off buildings. You can't sell women into slavery. You can't kill small children, and on and on and on and on and on, because it's not the right thing to do. This isn't the seventh century. They're the radicals. Mm -hmm. You should be afraid, <clears throat> afraid of the traditionalists. The orthodox should scare the crap out of you. So here's your homework assignment. Go on Amazon tonight and buy a Koran in English and read it. It'll be the scariest freaking thing you have ever read in your life. Trust me. And when you read some of those sutras, and it tells you what you're supposed to do to get into heaven, if it doesn't scare you to death, you don't speak English. Because it's that bad. Okay? I want radicals that will reject that book. I want radicals to walk in the street of Paris. There's a cartoon that went around the world after Paris. They showed the main plaza, and it was empty in the middle of the night, and it said, the moderate Muslims of France marching against terrorism. <laughs> and there was nobody in that street. Nobody, not one. Not one imam. Not one of the million Muslims, who, by the way, are going to be the dominant religion in France in one more generation. It's true. So, look for my article when it comes out. Okay, now we're going to be lawyers. Now we're going to learn about Hillary's email situation. Why she belongs in prison for a thousand years. Okay? Not a joke. I'm dead serious. Every key player at the State Department, not unlike the U.S. Armed Forces, I'm talking about officer, serious officer level, flag level, has to sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement that's about eight or nine pages, from what I'm told, I have a good friend who's an admiral that went over it with me as best as he could remember it. And it talks about not only access to classified information, but what you do with it, and your obligation to protect it, to keep it out of unauthorized hands. How many times have you all heard Hillary's statement, I think she said it thousands of times, nothing was classified on that server? Everybody hear that? Yeah. The next time you hear it, listen to these words. I hope they ring in your head. That's irrelevant. 
That has nothing to do with the law. There's a presumption in the law that you knew or should have known or it should have been marked. If it was marked the next day, if it was marked never, it doesn't matter. Do you hear me? There are at least 2,200 of those emails that have been recovered that are classified. Each one carries a civil penalty and a criminal penalty of up to seven years. Do the math. It's 14,000 years. Okay? Now that's not... Think it's ever going to happen? Wait a minute, I haven't gotten to the bad part yet. There's something called SAP. Okay, special access programs. And those are so top secret that the Inspector General of the State Department, when they were looking through the emails, when he got to an SAP email that was on that server, couldn't even read it. And he had top secret clearance. It's above his clearance level. Now, I asked the Admiral about that, and he said, when he was active duty, he's now retired, and they would bring him SAP, they would come with a locked briefcase, the guy would sit down there, and the Admiral would sit there, and he'd say, sir, here it is. And they'd open the briefcase, and he'd read it. No phone, no camera, no notes, no pen, no pencil, no note-taking. Sir, when you're done, please give it back to me. And then he would take it, or he would destroy it, and then put it back in his briefcase. It's so top secret, it has to do with the survival of the United States. Or, it's mission critical with a time component that if anyone was to see this and they were enemies of the country, they could find our CIA guys or gals, or they could infiltrate something, or they could break a code. It's the super top secret stuff. Okay? They found 22 of those on our server. Those are felonies, every one of them. Do you guys remember how many emails disappeared off that server before she gave it back to state? Anybody? 33,000. When asked about it, she said, well, of course I wouldn't turn over the emails about my daughter's wedding or when I would get my nails done. It's a lot of, lot of wedding plans. Okay. Do you know where the server was? It was in an apartment in the closet in Colorado. No firewall, no encoding, hacked into by at least five national countries that are enemies of the United States so far. One of the hackers got extradited to the United States and been talking like crazy about everything he pulled off that server. Okay. There's speculation within the intelligence community that China, Russia, North Korea has thousands of emails. Russia's already said they have thousands. WikiLeaks said they've got 10,000 that they're going to put on the internet. You know, General Petraeus, if you remember him, was demoted and disgraced over seven emails that he breached to his girlfriend, who had top secret clearance when she was writing <clears throat> his biography. And he should have been. I mean, it's a sad thing. He, he broke the law, he broke his code, and he broke his honor. But that was seven. We're talking about a magnitude, the likes of which, that have never happened in American history. And when she says things like, well, other Secretary of States have had their own server, well, that's true. But there's two big differences. When Colin Powell had it, it was before the rules changed, number one. And number two, he didn't have any secret stuff on it. 
That's why the State Department just came out with a ruling that said she broke numerous rules that shouldn't have been done contrary to instructions from state while she was Secretary of State. They didn't make any criminal decisions. They were just reviewing policy. Okay? So, I mean, she could go to jail for 50,000 whatever years. Doesn't matter. Here's what happened just yesterday. There's a lawsuit right now by a group called Judicial Watch, um, a public interest conservative group that is sued to find out what happened with this server. And a federal judge in Washington gave them subpoena power, and the first person they put under deposition was Brian Pagliano. You know who he is? He's the IT guy that built the server and maintained it. As of yesterday, he's invoked the Fifth Amendment 125 times in his deposition the other day. He read it off an index card every time he was asked a question that could lead to his criminal indictment. 125 times. The rumor is that they're going to ask the judge to give them the power, this is great, to subpoena Hillary Clinton. And they will get the answers, or she claims the fifth. And if she, whoops. That shouldn't be so good for her campaign. A number of scholars are predicting there will either be an indictment or people within the FBI are going to promise to leak the information the FBI has. The problem with an indictment is this. On a local level, the sheriff or the police department compiles all their evidence and then they go to the DA. Well, we have a very conservative DA that tends to indict people. On the federal level, the district attorney is the attorney general, who happens to be a, <clears throat> a very, very liberal Democrat named Loretta Lynch, who was appointed by Hillary, sorry, uh, by Barack Obama. And supposedly, there are secret emails between Hillary Clinton and President Obama as part of that list. So she's got Obama because he didn't report it. And he's obligated to report it. He's obligated to report a breach, right? Now, you can say, well, I didn't see it, or somebody, if it went to the White House under his personal ID code, and he opened it, and that can be proven, then he goes down with her. So chances are, he's going to protect himself by protecting her. Make sense? The FBI, certain people that have worked on this for a year, say they're going to leak it. If that happens, she loses. And then they go get Biden. That's my opinion. At the last minute. Okay, let's talk about Iran. You guys bored yet? No. No, you're not okay. <laughs> okay. I always like to tell this story because nobody knows about it. Um, Iranian hackers in 2013 hacked into a dam just outside of New York and were preparing to shut that dam down and destroy the water distribution system to several million New Yorkers. That story was never released to the public. Somehow the Wall Street Journal got it and they released it. But I never read about it in the San Diego paper. Somebody sent it to me and then I checked it and it was true. It's interesting how the United States government, who was negotiating with Iran, covered that up. The JCPOA, uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is what the Iran nuclear deal is, was made between Iran on one side and the 
a group of European and uh, related countries, the P plus six, um, P six plus one, I should say, and everybody signed that agreement that gave Iran approximately $150 billion in frozen funds in exchange for certain promises uh, to not make um, enriched uranium and to give away their enriched uranium that they've been making for 20 years and stop their nuclear weapons program and allow free inspections and allow inspectors to come in and blah, blah, blah. Um, and if that all happened and everybody that signed the deal honored the deal, maybe it wouldn't be such a bad deal, except there's one problem. One side didn't sign. Iran has never signed. Ever. How many of you know that? Have you heard me speak? Because nobody knows that every time I do that. I love to see the hands and people look at me. What are you talking about? Iran never signed the deal. It went to the parliament and it was rejected and the supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, said he will never sign a deal with the United States. It has never been signed. That's why, look it up, Kerry doesn't call it a treaty. Because to have a treaty, that has to be confirmed by the United States Senate in their exclusive control. That's the way the Constitution's set up. So they bypassed that and they called it an agreement made by executive action. And the Republicans let them get away with this, and as a result, we have this deal. And yet nobody in the United States knows, or cares apparently, that Iran never signed, or we gave them the money. So let's talk about what's happened recently. They're in violation of several dozen UN resolutions according to the UN. Um, remember, they were launching missiles in October and November. I can give you all the resolutions they violated. <laughs> The Senate got really angry, and Kerry went to the Senate and pleaded for two hours for the United States Senate not to sanction Iran for all these violations of all these missile tests. What kind of missiles are they? They are ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles. By definition, it is a missile that can travel intercontinental between continents. So they already have the missiles that can hit Europe. They already have the missiles that can hit Israel, and they've got a lot of them. Where else are they going to send a missile? To China? China would vaporize them. Russia would vaporize them. They talk about where they want to send the missiles, and that's to Washington and New York. And that's what they're developing. It's North Korean technology, and we're allowing that to happen. The UN, who usually sucks at inspections, has said these are all breaches. They have to be held accountable. The sanctions are still in place for testing intercontinental ballistic missiles. And Kerry's comment was, well, we don't know what we, they want to do with the missiles, so we shouldn't <laughs> sanction them. <laughs> well, that would be logical, that it's to put bombs on the top of them because they deliver warheads. You don't send over care packages or candy. You put a missile and you top it with a warhead that according to Israeli intelligence they already have which is why Israel has wanted to go many times and they were stopped by Obama on at least three occasions and I know that for a fact 
So the, uh, the, the UN found that they've been developing nuclear weapons for at least 10 years. They were found guilty. The UN did nothing. The United States did nothing. This is after they got the $150 billion. So what's happening now in Iran? This week, Obama and Kerry have both made announcements strongly supporting massive trade deals between the United States and Iran, including a massive deal with Boeing. You're going to love this quote. This week, I'm going to read it word for word. Administration officials said that they were encouraging businesses to make agreements with Iran in order to make it harder for future administrations to unravel the deal since then it would threaten American jobs. The push for opening up Iran to American business has been led by Secretary John Kerry, which has put him at odds with the Treasury Department, which is still enforcing certain sanctions against Iran. We are not going to stand in the way of permissible business with Iran, a senior administration official said. That was Friday. As long as we feel Iran is meeting the terms of our deal, then we're going to uphold our end of the bargain, and that is going to result in additional business activity with Iran. I had Jim Woolsey, you know, he is the former director of the CIA, on the show with me a couple weeks ago. It's really fascinating. We talked all afternoon for like two hours before the show. He said that this deal didn't start with this administration in Iran. It started with the previous administration. It went on in secret for three years. And the reason it didn't get announced is because that was a radical regime, and this is the moderate regime, which is a complete falsehood. He said, this is a quote from Jim, the U.S. capitulated on every single key point. We didn't push back on a single point. Do you remember the Ben Rhodes story a couple months ago? Ben Rhodes was the Obama spokesman who got caught bragging to the New York Times in their article on him that he met, misled the American press and public for months and months to sell the Iran nuclear deal, the JCOP, to the public. By the way, what happened to Ben Rhodes? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He wasn't even sanctioned by Obama. You want to know where he works today? 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. He still has his job. Which means what he did was sanctioned. It, you guys work. Somebody does something wrong at work and it's against your policy, you admonish them at minimum or you fire them. And if they, they betray you, you fire them and call the cops. This guy bragged to the New York Times, I misled the public for months. And the press, in the press briefing room, bought it. That's how I sold the deal for my president, who still pays him. God, that ought to make you mad. Makes me mad. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. <laughs> this, that's, that's a minor lie compared to what I just told. Okay, one last thing. American Truth Project, I hope you signed up. Uh, it's a 501c3, so if you want to give money to help put out our videos and our shows and our writings, please do so. You'll be on our mailing list anyway. Um, that's all I've got for you tonight. Thanks for being good, uh, good listeners and, and paying attention, and I'll answer as many questions as you like. Thanks for listening to the American Truth Project, a 501c3 nonprofit. Please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on our social media channels to stay plugged in to the truth.
go to americantoothproject.org and subscribe to our newsletter to stay informed on the latest news.